Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, now that Governor General Julie Payette has resigned, what is the impact on Canada and the government, and what's going to happen going forward? We'll talk about it. SickKids has released their revised report on school reopenings. The document says in-person school with a robust testing strategy is the best option for children. Dr. Martha Fulford, who was one of the contributing authors to that study, joins us to talk about it. And it's only President Joe Biden's third day in office, but they've hit the ground running. We'll get the latest top U.S. news from Washington, all coming up from our Global News Washington correspondent, Jennifer Johnson. It's all coming up on the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. To begin with, obviously, bombshell news out of Ottawa yesterday that uh, the Governor General, Julie Payette, has resigned uh, because of the, well, let's, let's use the adjectives here, scathing report, bombshell report, whatever the case might be, about the way that she's acted over the last little while uh, and the treatment of staff. Joining us to talk about this is Amanda Conley. Amanda, of course, is a national reporter with Global News. Amanda, thank you so much for the time. Good to have you with us today. Thank you for having me. Uh, the obvious question here is what went wrong, but we kind of saw this coming, didn't we? Yeah, this is certainly not, um, this is not the first time there have been questions raised about uh, Julie Payette and basically the way that she engages in the workplace. We've heard um, some of these, these concerns raised previously. We've heard concerns raised about the vetting process that led to her appointment back in 2017, repeatedly over the last couple of years here. This report in particular, though, came about, it really launched last fall, following a series of allegations that came out earlier in the year from a number of employees and former employees at Rideau Hall saying that the workplace there was unbearable, that it was unacceptable, they could not, um, the, the stress and the, the kind of uh, toxic environment they are being subjected to was not uh, was not okay, and that really is what kicked all of this process off. Well, and, and of course, as I say, we got a precursor for this, too, with some of the stories that came out earlier. And uh, as usual, I suppose, this happens all the time in Ottawa and Washington and other places, too, I guess, Amanda. Uh, the official response from Rideau Hall with those first set of allegations was, uh, the Governor General is fully committed to serving Canada and Canadians, and over the past 11 months, she has shown great leadership and executed on time all the duties of the Governor General. According to this report, not so much, right? Yeah, and so and I have to say as well that we, we do not have the actual copy of the report with us right now. Uh, we are waiting for that to be kind of, uh, you know, whether there will be a summary version of that made available to the public, whether it will be made uh, available in some kind of a redacted format. For example, there are, of course, privacy concerns here to protect mm-hmm. the staff who did come forward. Uh, what we are going on, though, again, is, is the, um, the characterizations of this report that have been made to Global News as well as to a number of other media outlets. And, of course, the response to that has provoked. It was made very clear uh, in conversations to Global News, that the report really only gave two options to Payette. Either she chose to resign of her own accord, or the Prime Minister would have to take the really unprecedented step of going to the Queen to actually ask for her dismissal. Which indicates, at least to me, and I think obviously from what I'm seeing on social media from some of our uh, uh, colleagues in, on, in different forms of uh, the broadcasting business around here, is uh, th- that's a departure for the Prime Minister as well, because, I mean, when these uh, allegations first surfaced a little while ago, as you reported, Amanda, he, he had her back. He said, you know, I have complete faith in her, yada, 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 yada. Uh, but he, uh, I understand now this meeting that he had with her on Wednesday night was, uh, was pretty grim. Yeah, I mean, so what we've heard so far, and of course, I want to just say that you know the, the investigation had not been completed at the time that Trudeau was saying we you know we have an excellent governor general. Yeah. This process will play out. Uh, that you know that kind of language would certainly be consistent with a more cautious approach that you would expect to see pending the results of an investigation. Of course, now that we do actually we are actually hearing the results of this probe, the language has changed considerably. We got a, a pretty brief statement from Trudeau about uh, her resignation yesterday evening. 
Uh, we're certainly expected to hear a lot more from him about this today at a press conference scheduled uh, in the next two hours here in Ottawa. And again, the, the kind of questions here really are both looking ahead and looking back at the vetting process itself. Uh, Trio, of course, had not used the same process that the panel appointing process that Stephen Harper had used when Trudeau appointed uh, or recommended Payette to this role. There are going to be questions about that process going forward to look for her replacement, as well as what happens next. Will Payette, for example, get the uh, the pension and the expense accounts that other governors general who have retired uh, without this kind of cloud over them traditionally do get? Who makes that decision? Is that a, a, a parliamentary decision, or how does that work? Do you, any idea? This is all new ground for us, isn't it? This this is all very much new ground, of course, as you mentioned there, and it's a question that we're, we're hoping to have more answers on uh, today. <clears throat> that will certainly be among the questions that we are we are focusing on here at Global News as well as we look to uh, to push this story forward as well. But certainly a lot of new territory here, um, unprecedented scenario here is, is really the only way to describe this. Amanda, what are you hearing on the Hill from, from the, you know, the, the whispers that go around back and forth like this? Since the story broke uh, late last uh, yesterday afternoon, I guess, into the early evening uh, that she was stepping down, uh, there are a lot of people trying to pin this on the prime minister himself and said, you should have known. Uh, is, 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 he gonna, uh, is there an attempt here to, t- to ha- tag this onto him and simply say this never should have happened? She probably never should have even been appointed? That is certainly part of the conversation. We did hear yesterday from, um, or sorry, I should say our colleagues at the Canadian Press uh, did hear yesterday from Dominic LeBlanc, who is the uh, mm-hmm. Intergovernmental Affairs Minister and also the head of the Privy Council. Uh, and he, he was saying that this, this resignation does show that there is a need to strengthen the process uh, for vetting these vice-regal appointments, uh, that there are, you know, obviously this, this report came to compelling conclusions and that they're, they are taking seriously the questions that this raises about how Payette was first selected and appointed. Uh, and again, that, that process really did play out differently than what we've seen in the past. And so the question now is, will this, if they're, when they're looking for her replacement, will they look to do that through the more panel process that we have seen in the past? Will this happen based on, you know, personal preference and kind of a, that sort of maybe perhaps like the shiny object kind of thing where you're looking for someone who might be able to have um, good publicity, good relations on a number of kind of key files that you want to push? Um, or will you kind of go more of the constitutional route, which we saw with, with uh, some of the previous governors general? So those are all questions that are being asked in Ottawa today, though. We did hear from senior liberal sources yesterday that, again, they really were hoping that Payette would take this decision of her own accord and not, not force um, the prime minister to have to actually go to the queen and, and, and take those kind of unprecedented steps. I, I mean, hindsight's always twenty twenty. So, I mean, you know, a lot of people that have got the knives out right now, uh, maybe not so much, you know, back in 2017 when she was appointed. Because on paper, I mean, as you've been reporting, I mean, she, she seemed to check all the boxes, you know, former astronaut, uh, highly educated, you know, two de- engineering degrees, uh, you know, fluent in, in a number of different languages. It sounded like, yeah, that, that sounds like a pretty decent choice. Uh, but I guess somebody dropped the ball when it came to checking her past work record, too, because this, as you've been reporting from yesterday, is not the first time that these sort of allegations have been made against her. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and a lot of these have come out, again, since she has been named to the post. Um, and a lot of them were, were things that um, so some of them were in various forms of public records. Some of them were before the courts. Um, mm-hmm. And so there, there have been a number of things here that, that you would you would certainly expect if there had been a full vetting process would have been possible to uncover. Again, we, we don't know to what extent that vetting process happened. We don't usually get those kind of specifics from uh, government appointments and that's, that's certainly not unusual to not have clear details there. But again, the fact that these things have come out 
uh, through the media, as well as allegations related to, um, you know, allegations of bullying in past workplaces. All of those things certainly point to the, the, the issue here of perhaps this wasn't done as carefully as it ought to have been. You, you asked about uh, just a second ago in our conversation here what, what's going to happen next. I guess in the short term, uh, my understanding is that the uh, Chief Justice of the Supreme Court will assume these duties, at least temporarily. Yes, that's correct. And so this, again, there, there is precedent um, for generally this, this would happen in cases where a governor general has, you know, unfortunately passed away in office or things of that nature. So there is uh, there is a mechanism for that, that, that role to be filled or the functions of that role to be filled. As you mentioned there, it will be filled by the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of Canada. Uh, we don't have a timeline really yet for when there will be a, a more permanent replacement named to this role. Again, the, the kind of ticking clock time pressure here, of course, is that we are in a minority government. It can fall mm-hmm. at any time. And if that's the case, the governor general is the person who is very involved in that decision to, you know, do, do you let the government call an election? Do you give a chance to the opposition to try and govern? And so this is really not a great time to have that role be vacant. And we're certainly expecting to, uh, to hear more about that in fairly short order. Well, as you mentioned, 11.30 this morning, the Prime Minister has his, uh, his daily briefing from Rideau College. And uh, given the, the Governor General news here, given the vaccine information and the pipeline stuff, uh, Amanda, get a comfortable chair. This could be a marathon session for you today. <laughs> it certainly appears that way, yes. <laughs> All the best. Listen, good luck with this. Thanks so much for the time today. Great talking with you again. Thanks for having me. Take care. Amanda Conley, national reporter for Global News. And uh, as we say, more to come on this. And the allegations uh, were were striking, actually, when we heard about this. And uh, and as Amanda mentioned, there are some privacy concerns here, which is why a number of people on staff at the uh, Rideau Hall at the Governor General's residence uh, remain anonymous. But this is a little mix of some of the comments that we've heard. This has gone from being one of the most collegial and enjoyable work environments for many of the staff to being a house of horrors. It wasn't always insults and vulgar. But there was always that level of criticism, and I would say in almost every meeting, someone was berated. They will bully you until you either agree or leave. Sad story, sad situation. And as I say, Amanda mentioned, we don't have the full report yet, but uh, certainly uh, the, the ramifications of this are, uh, are going to be felt considerably, especially, as she said, because we're in a minority situation. So what are the next steps, and what is uh, the, 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 the magnitude of, of the, the fallout from this? Uh, to that end, pleased to welcome to the program uh, Danielle Bellard, who is the uh, James McGill Professor in the Department of Political Science and the Director of the McGill Institute for Study of Canada. Uh, professor, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could join us today. Thanks for the invitation. Good morning. Good morning. I, I, our, Amanda Connolly, our global reporter from Ottawa, mentioned that the, this is not without precedent. Uh, I know within the Commonwealth there have been situations like this before, but uh, this is, uh, as we mentioned, breaking new ground. This doesn't happen very often, does it? No, not a resignation like that, uh, and, and, uh, and this is really uh, unprecedented. Um, and and I, I think that, yes, there are provisions in place. Uh, so for Richard Wagner, not the composer, but the chief justice, uh, in French, we say Richard Wagner, so it doesn't sound exactly the same way as in German, but still, uh, uh, he's from Quebec, but he's the uh, chief justice, and so he's the administrator stepping in to to really fulfill the duties of the governor general while a replacement is uh, you know being uh, decided upon um, but yeah this is uh, uh, and, and it's not just uh, something unprecedented uh, uh, from an institutional standpoint it's also politically um, a bomb like it's 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 big uh, even if many people think that yeah, the governor general doesn't do that much and it's quite ceremonial it's actually a pillar of our constitutional order of, of, of uh, uh, our, our 
our, our system of government, uh, and, and because we are in a constitutional monarchy. And so, uh, as the representative of the uh, the Queen in in Canada, the Governor General does, you know, uh, sign the uh, the bills into law, uh, gives royal assent, and also is crucial in the case of. You know, if the prime minister wa um, wants to dissolve parliament, for example, and we are talking here about the prospect of, in the context of minority government, this could happen sooner rather than later. There are all sorts of things that could could happen that the governor general will have to be involved in. Do you, now we have the, the chief justice wearing two hats right now as this administrator uh, filling in um, temporarily to, 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 to perform the duties of the governor general, the essential duties, and he's also still the chief justice. So you don't want that to, <laughs> to last for too long. Uh, and, and though the next step is to find, obviously, a replacement, a permanent replacement for uh, Julie Payette and someone who will, I think, be a source of consensus. Uh, and probably you want to consult with opposition parties about this and, and uh, vet this person properly, because it was not the case of Julie Payette. And I think the Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, um, is responsible for this choice, right, and of Julie Payette, and he, uh, he didn't use the uh, advisory committee on vice-regal appointments that Stephen Harper had set up in 2012. And so the vetting process, um, we know it was not very good from the start, not great, but also we learned since <laughs> her nomination things about her previous jobs, uh, uh, with the Canadian Olympic Committee uh, and also the Montreal Science Centre, and it didn't go well in terms of HR and, and mm -hmm. workplace uh, behaviour. So she had a track record that uh, people who knew her, 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 her professional life could have certainly testified about or, or uh, give uh, tips to uh, government officials about, but obviously either this didn't happen or they knew about it and then they decided to just pretend that, you know, this won't come out and she will be fine as a governor general. But either way, um, you know, in retrospect, at least it was a, a bad decision, to say the least. Absolutely. But from, as, as you're describing the duties and responsibilities here, though, Professor, I, I get the sense that there probably is some sense of urgency here. Uh, but at the same time, uh, if he goes ahead and just chooses somebody else, as he did with this one, uh, he's, you know, damned if you do, damned if you don't. But on the other hand, if he goes back to this independent committee, you've got to strike that committee. You've got to get members for it. So that's going to take some time, too. And as you say, the clock is ticking on a minority government. I mean, you know, if he wants to prorogue, if he wants to dissolve parliament, whatever, the, we've all heard all those rumors over the last couple of months. Uh, yeah. We don't know where we're going yet, do we? Exactly. So the, the best thing, I think, is to work with opposition parties, find a consensual candidate, uh, uh, you know, type elder statesman or someone who has a stellar reputation, I mean, and who has a, yes, a, a stellar reputation and will create consensus. Um, not nominating someone to send a message about something like we believe in science and we nominate an astronaut, <laughs> but say, you know, um, we, we, we want to f someone who's highly competent, in, in, uh, who knows about constitutional matters, perhaps, but also uh, someone who, who had a stellar professional record without any stains. And, and, and find someone also that opposition parties would like just because of the, the context. And it might accelerate things if, if you have the input from opposition parties. And yes, they need to strike a, a committee and move very fast. At the same time, they don't want to move too fast so that they pick 
uh, someone who might not be vetted properly again, because that would be a catastrophe. You don't want that to happen twice in a row. <laughs> yeah, you don't want to go uh, from bad into worse in situations like this. But as we say, this this uh, obviously a necessity here to try to get this thing done sooner than later. Uh, and it's not as if the prime minister has a whole lot of free time to think about this right now with vaccine situations, Keystone exactly. Pipeline situations, and this is this is a headache he probably didn't want. Oh my God, this is bad. Yeah. So we have the pandemic and we have minority uh, parliament at the same time. <laughs> so uh, this is the the timing is very bad. If it was in the time of a majority government. Uh, that will be, I think, uh, you know, the ur- urgency to find a replacement might not be as great. But I think now, in considering the crisis and the fact that we need to regularly enact emergency measures and that the government could call it <laughs> at any time uh, when there is a confidence vote after the next budget, for example. Yeah, so it's, it's, you, they would have to strike a balance between being expedient and fast at the same time finding someone who's vetted properly and, and who would not create any controversy. Because there have been controversy before with governor generals, oh, sure, as yeah. you know, expenses of former governor generals mm-hmm. like Adrian Car- uh, Clarkson. We learned that some years ago. She had <laughs> billed, uh, you know, she, uh, the, 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 the government for, um, the government of Canada for a lot of um, expenses. Um, and 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 so these, you know, this is a, also a ceremonial role as well, right? It's there, it's an important part of the role is ceremonial. There is the constitutional role, but also the ceremonial role. And so uh, it's important someone who projects an image of integrity. And and and, um, and 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 so I, I think that this is there are a lot of Canadians who could fit the bill in a way, but uh, you still want to vet them properly because some people might exactly. look really good on paper, they have a good reputation, but then when you scratch the surface, <laughs> you realize that you know it's not so shiny below the surface. Exactly, Professor. It's going to be a difficult times, and we'll be watching. Thank you so much for the time today. Great to get you on the program. Thank you. Have a great day. Okay, Professor Daniel Bailon from uh, McGill University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Yeah, Ontario government has decided to keep a number of school districts closed once again because they're not happy with the spread of COVID-19. And this is causing an awful lot of angst within the the education system and within the community in general uh, because they, well, in many people's minds, are obfuscating and changing their minds on a pretty regular basis about what's happening. Uh, Global's Dave Woodard has some details. The author's report maintains, as it did in the summer, that getting kids in class is not only important for their education, but their overall health. The update included new advice on testing and tracing and more robust physical distancing and masking efforts. The authors wrote that all children and staff who are symptomatic need to be tested, while only asymptomatic kids should be tested if they've come in contact with someone with COVID. They also say that significant resources might be required, like more teachers to keep cohort sizes low and additional cleaning staff. The report says closures should only be considered when there's an outbreak and that they should be the first to reopen. Dave Woodard, Global News. Now, you partner that with the story that's being reported in the Toronto Star today that uh, said the documents that they have uncovered uh, indicate that Ontario has, to use their phrase, watered down the strategies to keep COVID-19 out of the classrooms, which is only adding to the frustration, I guess, that's going on. Joining us to talk about this is Dr. Martha Fulford. Uh, Dr. Fulford is a pediatric infectious disease specialist at McMaster Children's Hospital and Hamilton Health Sciences, and also one of the contributors to the uh, Sick Kids School Guidelines document. Uh, Doctor, great to have you back on the program. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for asking me. 
You've heard, I'm sure, the same kind of feedback that I've been getting over the last couple of days every time we bring this topic up, and that's uh, accusations about mixed messaging, about uh, you know doing things in half measures. Uh, you were a participant in the whole process to try to set the guidelines for this. How do you respond to how, and give me your, your read on how you feel the province is responding and how they're acting and, and, and putting policies forth? The... Uh one of the biggest revisions in the document, if you look at it, uh, I, th I think we can sort of pick one bit or another, but I think one of probably the single most important section for me was actually that we have a much more expanded uh, discussion on the harms to children uh, mm -hmm. because of the prolonged closures, particularly mental health. 70%, 70, that's 70% of children and teenagers in Ontario have reported a worsening in their mental health. Uh, we know that we're starting to see significant uh, learning deficits and, and uh, loss of educational milestones in kids that maybe were already vulnerable. And so a lot of our report and advocacy, of course, is on behalf of children. And so uh, for me, uh, not uh, returning to school, uh, it, I mean, it's very problematic. And I think if you look at the you know, baseline recommendation is that an in-person school model with, with, you know, with the risk mitigation strategies that we have in place is the best conceivable option from the overall health perspective for children of all ages. And so, I mean, I will take that as a starting point. So it is disappointing uh, for somebody like me who, who has been uh, trying to advocate uh, for a very long time for our kids and that, that they are the, the hidden victims of this pandemic in a lot of ways. I mean, certainly COVID is very re real and it is very dangerous uh, to the frail elderly population and children who are not, in fact, vulnerable to COVID and do not get particularly sick at all are, are paying the, the biggest price. And so when we're putting this document together, what we're trying to do is, is, of course, say, we believe schools need to be reopened and these are some possibilities uh, for doing this. And again, no one intervention is the make-or-break intervention. It's a package of all of these things together. And and if a school can't do one or another thing, it's not just this or just that. So uh, if, if, for example, uh, you know, there's a lot of discussion about class size and physical space, that's not always an option depending on the building. And so the report specifically points out that cohorting instead of physical distancing, especially for young children, is a very reasonable alternative. And this is particularly important because playing and socializing is incredibly important for their long-term development. And so if anything, uh, maybe we need to rethink some of this, but, but all of this with an eye of, of reopening in-person schools, knowing that this is going to be the best thing, both in terms of preventing short-term as well as long-term harm to them. One of the most telling statistics, I think, uh, that we saw, and I know you're aware of this, but uh, about the mental health aspect, uh, is uh, the uh, statistics about the Children's Helpline. In 2019, my uh, data shows that they had just over a million calls uh, to the helpline. Mm -hmm. In 2020, which is the year of the pandemic shutdown, of course, over four million, or four times exactly. as many. Which we, I, I think that that underscores exactly what you were just saying. But I, I think that what I wanted to also ask you, though, Doctor, is there seems to be almost a philosophical difference here right now. I, I get the sense when I'm listening to 
to Minister Lecce or to the Premier when they have these daily briefings, that their feeling is is that they shut the they think shutting down the schools is actually going to stop the spread of the virus, uh, and there's a very very strong uh, I think uh, line of thought that says that's not what's necessary here. Uh, it's, it's causing much more harm than it is good. That that uh, and again I know that oftentimes they've asked the Premier and asked Dr. Williams show us the data that suggests that that, that that's going to be an effective way, and they don't seem to have it. No, I, 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 and they don't, I don't think. And I, we could learn a lot from looking outside of Ontario's borders. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ontario's actually the only province that's, that's got this prolonged shutdown. British Columbia, as you'll recall, was also having marked increase uh, in their numbers. Uh, their numbers have gone down, and they, their schools were not shut down. And, in fact, they have uh, uh, looser, if anything, uh, mitigation strategies there. So I think we could learn a lot from uh, from British Columbia. We could learn a lot from Alberta and Manitoba, which likewise did not close their schools. Even Quebec, with a strict curfew, uh, put uh, education schools as a priority. That's just within Canada. We could certainly learn from other jurisdictions. We could look at a lot of the jurisdictions of the United States. We could look at Scotland. We could look at Norway, Germany, Sweden, uh, there are many, many examples where we could look beyond our own borders to to uh, see uh, that for COVID, schools, if we look at the epidemiology, have not actually been shown to be what you might call an amplifier uh, mm-hmm. of the virus, but more um, reflectors of what's going on in the community. And just because we have high community transmission, that doesn't mean it's the kids doing it. It's more likely the adults. But even then... We have to always consider risk and benefit. And when we're talking about risk, the risk to our children of not going to school is significantly higher than the risk of COVID to them. And so as a society, I would argue that we should have the the imagination and the will and the creativity to figure out how we're going to manage the COVID pandemic as well as the pandemic of harm we're causing in our children. And the second one is one that is completely preventable. I, I don't want to drag you into the political weeds on this uh, because this, that, that, you're yeah, a scientist. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, pretty thick too. But the, what concerns me here, and this goes all the way back to the first shutdown almost a year ago now, uh, is that you know, the recommendations that the, the first draft of that, the sick kids recommendations, set out a certain protocol that could be followed here to try to make this mm-hmm. work. Uh, and they didn't do that. I mean, they, uh, to use the phrase of the trial to start today, they watered this down. And, and I think a lot of people are asking these days, Doctor, are they doing what they think is best or are they doing what they think is less expensive? Uh, because to follow the protocol that you've set out here, uh, as we mentioned, would probably require more teachers, maybe more PPE, uh, some other things that would have to be taken precautions. It's going to cost money. And, and I, I get the sense that this government's not crazy about that because they probably have to foot the bill and they don't seem to want to. Uh, and again, that's not your decision. That's a government decision. That's where the politics uh, starts to filter into the science and situations like this. But uh, I'd like to think that the expertise that you and others on your panel are offering here uh, would be the guiding light here, as opposed to something that, well, yeah, let's let's not even go there. It's got to be awfully frustrating. Yeah, I will say, and this is a personal opinion, that sure. when we're thinking of money, that the single best investment that we could make for the future of our society is in education. I do not believe we'd have a wasted dollar if we invested it in education, in educating our children and and, uh, and building their future. 
I uh, was talking with a good friend of mine, Alex Pearson, who's on our sister station in Toronto, AM640, uh, and uh, she's a mom, and uh, she was telling me last night, and I don't think she minds me sharing the stories because I know she's talked about it on her show, she's very frustrated. It, her son is not enjoying this. It's not going well with the remote learning. Uh, he's frustrated. She as a mother is frustrated because, you know, she she of can't course. really spend a lot of time on this. I mean, we're not hearing those stories yet, but we're hearing about them anecdotally. Uh, and, and even if we come out of this thing in another three or four months or nine months or whatever it's going to be, I think a lot of people, doctor, are concerned about the long-term ramifications of this. Absolutely. And, and that's why for me, there is no dollar wasted if it is spent on education. Because uh, that is the future of our province and the future of our country is our kids. And it's, it may cost something to do this. You know, it may cost more for PPE. They may have to hire more teachers. They may have to hire, uh, you know, other people to look after during lunch times of recess and things of this nature. Uh, but if it's for the kids. I mean, you know, I, I'd love to talk to any taxpayer who's going to say, I don't think we should spend money on our kids. That's ridiculous. Of course we should, whatever it takes. And, and the reporting that you've done on this with your panel for these guidelines twice now, because it's been revised, have indicated that this is the way to go. And, and, and and, you know, I asked earlier, does the minister have the science or the data to show that, that, that their way is the better way? They don't. But you do, uh, based on what's happened in Quebec and B.C. and, and other jurisdictions. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I would. my advocacy would be schools should be reopened. Yeah. Uh, and, and we put in the measures we need. And we're, we're talking about COVID right now. And long term, I mean, COVID will become an endemic uh, virus and, and it will no longer be the concern. But to be perfectly honest, some of these measures long-term will probably be very beneficial because we're learning a lot about transmission. And if we decrease, for example, influenza transmission in classrooms, that's also beneficial long-term. And so I don't know that, for example, I do not think long-term we'll have to have some of these really strict measures. But I think we are learning a lot about about having a safer long-term environment. And, And there's nothing wrong with that. And there's nothing wrong with investing in that. Well, what it may have done here in a, in a very twisted way is, is brought to light a number of the things that probably should have been done in the physical bricks-and-mortar buildings themselves. You know, we've, we've had money invested in things like, you know, better HVAC systems, uh, ventilation, things of that nature. Well, you know, COVID aside for just a second, that, that's an unhealthy environment no matter what for kids. Well, well, that's the thing, is that maybe it's time to to look at, at a lot of our building structures. I mean, certainly I think, uh, you know, I know we're talking about children, but the other place that we're clearly have a lot of learning and, and improvement to do with long-term care facilities in terms of the actual structures and design. And so, sure, you know, COVID will become a thing of the past, believe it or not. Um, it's something that, that you know, we, we, I, I do believe we're going to get over. But I think there's a lot of stuff here that we could learn uh, that, that can be long-term. Uh, well, I, again, had a I cannot discussion. advocate strongly enough for schools reopening. I mean, I, I, the, the, the harm to our children right now is profound. It is short-term and long-term harm, and we can get them back to school, and, and, and that should be a, a priority. And, and kids, especially in the elementary school level, I mean, they don't articulate their frustrations or, or the, the mental stress that they're under, but they do act out. I mean, there are there, there are manifestations of that that parents are telling me about almost on a daily basis now. Uh, so, the you know, the information is there. And I, I, I'm, I'm flummoxed, and I'm sure you are too, to understand why the government just seems to say, no, this is better. I was, I was surprised, frankly, uh, for the announcement earlier this week that they were going to maintain the shutdown for another length of time in most of the province, for that matter. Uh, and, I think and a again, lot of us were. Yeah. 
And, and okay, again, I so, can't emphasize enough that all we have to do is look at the rest of Canada to realize that schools absolutely can be kept open. Yeah, well, you know, they seem to buddy up when it comes to some other things like energy policies and everything. When it comes to education, you'd like to think that they open their eyes and start looking beyond the borders here to see what else is happening too. Uh, but it is, you know, what they're doing seems to be the way they seem to want to go on this, I'll, I'll, notwithstanding the fact that there seems to be a lot of evidence to the contrary. Uh, when you talk to your, your, your colleagues about this, uh, what what do we do next? I mean, you know, you're not concerned about the money that's being spent. You're not concerned about budgets and things of that nature. Uh, that's a government job. That's politics. You're concerned about the well-being of, of the kids and the family yeah. environment, too, for that matter. It's their families. It's their homes. It's, as mm-hmm. you pointed out, the helplines. It's the increased cost of suicide lines. We have a lot of concerns about kids that may be in abusive environments that are now hidden and, and don't have their safety nets and the people who can keep an eye out for them. There are a lot of concerns. Well, we had a, another expert on yesterday uh, that was talking about uh, physical health, uh, quite aside from the mental health aspect uh, with elementary school kids because they don't have that exercise. They don't have the playground activity. They don't Absolutely. have the interaction with other kids. Uh, you know, we're all complaining, uh, those of us that have been sheltered at home for the last little while or working from home, as I've been doing for almost 10, 11 months now too, uh, we talk about the fact that, hey, this is frustrating because we are social beings, kids more so. They need that interaction. That, that, that's how you develop personality critical. skills and social skills. It is critical to their social and long-term development. Well, I, I, I applaud you and your colleagues, Doctor, for, for doing what you're doing and, and trying to keep this message. And, and, and you're, you've been consistent through this whole thing. Uh, and I, I just, I'm, I'm surprised that the government is just not taking a heed here and, and following through on this. Uh, because, uh, you know, I've talked to teachers associations about this. I've talked to parent groups about this. And there's a unanimity here to this that says, look, you guys are doing this wrong. Uh, pl- would you please listen to us? And and uh, it's when then when you get an announcement like we got earlier this week, you just figure you know what they're they're hearing, but they're not listening, and that's that's probably very very frustrating for everybody. It is. Um, again, I mean, I, I just for me, the investment in education will pay off long term for the economy. And if people, are, you know, and I'm not an economist, this isn't my area of expertise, but we know that education is one of the single most uh, important markers for upward mobility, for graduation from high school, for, for post-secondary education, for successful, um, you know, jobs, business development. Our kids are our future, and, and, and it is not a waste of money to invest in our kids. Well, that's the message, and uh, we're going to be consistent with that, as you have been. Uh, Doctor, as always, thank you so much. It was great talking My with pleasure. you again today. Stay well. Thank you, Dr. you too. Dr. Martha Fulford, you too. Dr. Martha Fulford, as I say, she was a contributor to this. She was one of the uh, group of doctors that actually put these recommendations forward. And you may remember about a year ago uh, in the first shutdown, we talked with Dr. Fulford and other members uh, from the Sick Kids panel. We've had a number of them on the program over the last number of months uh, that are very frustrated, as as I'm sure Dr. Fulford is, because they said, look, this is the way to do it. And the government simply said, oh, yeah, okay, thanks for coming out. We'll, we'll have a look at this. And I, I, I know, I, this is not, I guess it is getting political, but I don't want the government to go cheap on this. 
and simply say, well, we don't want to hire a whole bunch of teachers. And I know they've come back and said, oh, we've given more money to the boards or we've given them permission to, to go in and, into the reserves and things like that. And there have been some hires. I get that. But certainly not as much as there should be. And certainly not to the degree that this, this panel has suggested. And it just simply means that, you know, maybe we're going to have to have smaller class sizes. Maybe they're going to have to make some adjustments, some infrastructure adjustments within the schools themselves. Uh, maybe they're going to have to hire more teachers and supervisors because there's going to be smaller class sizes. But it's paying off. If the old idea, remember I, the old commercial, you know, you can pay me now or you can pay me later. Uh, if they're going to go cheap on this and not do what this panel is recommending, uh, first of all, you're going to have a, a whole generation of kids, and I'm not exaggerating, uh, that are going to have some mental health problems. They're going to have some physical problems as a result of this. They're going to fall behind, and in a very competitive society and in a very competitive global economy, we can't afford that. That's that's, you know, our, it's our job to give our children all the tools that they need to succeed later in life. And if we're holding back on it right now because, well, I don't want my taxes to go up, uh, that's not fair to the kids, especially this situation. This is a pandemic. This is a, a, a crisis situation. And we expect the government to act accordingly. And I don't think they're doing it yet, not in this regard anyway. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Joe Biden was uh, inaugurated just a couple of days ago. This is day three of his presidency. He's going to be on the phone to uh, Prime Minister Trudeau a little bit later on. But it's been quite an eventful week, including a, another COVID briefing yesterday. And lo and behold, Dr. Anthony Fauci was uh, actually up there uh, with the new president. And, uh, well, it was a different kind of Anthony Fauci that was there. Mary Bruce reports. He joked a couple times about sort of the difference in briefing in, under this administration versus the Trump administration. Remember, Fauci was virtually banished by former President Trump. In fact, he seemed really relieved, saying at one point that it's nice to be able to get up and talk about science and let the science speak. That, that was only one aspect of it. A number of uh, other things that the president did yesterday, too, uh, including a number of different orders to uh, revoke some of the Trump president's or, uh, policies that went in place. Joining us to talk about all this is Jennifer Johnson. Jennifer, of course, is Washington correspondent for Global News in Washington. Jennifer, great to have you on the program. Thanks for the time today. Thanks for having me, Bill. Thank you. I've quite a sight seeing Tony Fauci up there. He looked emancipated, didn't he? <laughs> yeah, he looked very happy. He, as you, as you just heard in that report, he talked about, you know, it's nice to be up here. It's nice to be talking about the science, discussing the facts. And, and as is typical Tony Fauci, he laid it out for the American public that things, you know, the hospitalizations are starting to level off, but we're still looking at potentially 500,000 people dead by next month. And this is, you know, it's a very, very serious situation. We've got to mask up. Um, Joe Biden wants to administer 100 million doses in 100 days. That's been problematic, mainly because the first dose of these two approved vaccines, one is given and then three weeks later the second is given. Now, the CDC just announced today that the second dose can be delivered up to six weeks after the first dose. That's going to free up more doses. Joe Biden invokes the Defense Production Act. That's going to set up federal vaccination centers to try to get 100 million doses in 100 days. So that's the plan, Bill. It is. And, and Biden's been consistent about this, hasn't he, Jennifer? I mean, obviously, he's only been in office three days, but I mean, when he was still president-elect Biden, the, the message he seemed to be consistently giving the American people was, look, this is going to be a, a hell of a year. It's going to get worse before it gets better. He's not candy-coating anything, is he? No, and he, you know, he's a very honest person. He, he, you know, he speaks truthfully to the American public. He's not trying to sugarcoat anything, and he says it's going to get worse before it gets better. 
this is what we have to do. I mean, he he believes strongly that if he can he can get things rolling in terms of the use of the Defense Production Act, that's increasing supplying, increasing the supply chain, increasing personnel to administer the shots. Then we can, as Dr. Fauci said yesterday, you know, we can start seeing herd immunity hopefully by early fall, maybe late summer. And so, but it, like you said, it's going to get worse before it gets better. And, you know, I mean, people in America, I think there was, for for the most part, a collective sigh of relief to see Anthony Fauci up at the podium at the White House briefing room. Because, you know, he's he's been around for five administrations. He's not only the nation's top infectious disease doctor, but he's also served under Republicans and Democrats and, as I said, five administrations. And he's a very trusted figure in the United States. Traditionally, new prime ministers, new presidents, whatever it is, Jen, they're judged. How did you, what did you do in the first hundred days? I don't know why they arbitrarily picked that number, but I guess what they're looking for is okay. You know, are, are you talking the talk? Are you walking the walk? Uh, Biden has signed. I don't know. I've lost track of the executive orders he signed over the last couple of days. Uh, most of them simply reversing most of this. A lot of the executive orders that Donald Trump had signed. Yeah, he's he has signed a number of executive orders. He actually, it was such a strange inauguration because there were no, you know, nighttime balls and big parties. So at 5.15, the day of the inauguration, he was in the Oval Office signing executive orders, stopping construction of the Keystone Pipeline, stopping construction on the border wall, um, and reversing a number of executive orders signed by the president. I mean, he signed a a racial... um, equity uh, economic executive order he has signed a federal mask mandate executive order that's for federal properties um, and for interstate travel planes automobiles um, that cross interstate lines and trains um, sounds like a movie but he you know he, as you said he's done a number of exe- he's signed a number of executive orders and just you know, for your audience's purposes, this is something that a president is allowed to do at his discretion. And these don't, these are bills or proposals, policies, if you will, that do not have to go through congressional approval. Uh, and, and as I say, there's more to come on that situation, too. But let's talk a little bit about the politics within the politics here. Uh, we know, of course, that uh, that, uh, that Trump was impeached by the by the, the House of Representatives. Uh, they have not yet sent those articles over to the Senate. Uh, Mitch McConnell, the, the constant deal maker here, I guess, is now starting to, to figure he, he's got a little bit of leverage here. He wants to delay this. And I guess that what he's throwing on the table uh, is a compromise here is we'll get your uh, your your cabinet appointees through. Uh, but, it's you know, we can't do both. I guess the, the old idea that maybe Maybe these guys can't walk and chew gum at the same time. Uh, the tradition and, and the reputation, uh, Jennifer, that, that Biden has is uh, after his long term, of course, in the Senate as a deal maker. Uh, are they going to talk about this? Is there going to be a negotiation or is he just going to try to ram this through? Well, the timing of your question is perfect because um, Senate now majority leader, about to be majority leader, uh, Chuck Schumer, just announced, and Nancy Pelosi, the House Speaker, just announced that they will send the article of impeachment over to ah. the Senate on Monday. Okay. And so, but it will then be up to Chuck Schumer, since the Democrats are now in control of the Senate, when to allow this to go to trial. Um, I'm sure they'll be doing some negotiations, but I believe it'll be sooner rather than later. Um, they don't want to spend all day, as the previous impeachment trial has happened with the previous impeachment trial, arguing this all day. They want to kind of split it in half, 
take up bills and uh, proposals from the Biden administration half the day and conduct the trial for the other half of the day. I've never seen that, so we'll see how that works. But um, the Democrats want to get this get this through. They want it behind them. Um, and, you know, whether or not this, the president, again, is convicted, they need the Senate needs 17 uh, Republicans. It, it looks like most Democrats, if not all Democrats, will vote to convict. They need 17 Republicans to do so. Mitch McConnell obviously wields a lot of power. So and he has kind of vacillated between whether or not he feels the president should be convicted. It'll be interesting to see if they can get those 17 votes, 17 yeah, more I, votes. We need a two thirds majority. And he's, of course, said as well, he hasn't made up his mind yet. We can take him at his word, I'm sure. Uh, but but that's that's the horse trading that's going on right now. It's not just about the cabinet and, you know, about this. Uh, I know that he's, he's had some negotiations with, uh, with Chuck Schumer, of course, uh, who's now the majority leader in the Senate, uh, about the makeup of the committees. Uh, because invariably, the, te- the, the team that's got the power, uh, they had all the committees. And I, what I was hearing yesterday uh, was that, uh, that McConnell is saying, oh, no, 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 you guys don't really have a clear mandate. We should mix this up and have some Republicans and some <laughs> Democrats running some of these committees. I mean, th- 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 he's got a lot of, well, you know what, the chutzpah, I guess, uh, to try to do something like that. But, I mean, Schumer's not going to play that game, is he? I don't believe he's going to play this that game. I mean, the, the re- Democrats haven't had control of you know the Senate for several years, and I think they want the control. They want to get the backlog, the logjam, in the Senate, in Congress, you know, get rid of that. Let's get some bills passed. I mean, Mitch McConnell is going out as majority leader, becoming minority leader, at last count with 275 bipartisan bills sitting on his desk. And that's been very frustrating for lawmakers on both sides. And so I don't believe that Chuck Schumer is going to play that game. I think that they are going to run these committees. I think they're going to run the show. And we'll see how it plays out. Very quickly, I, I, we mentioned just at the beginning of our conversation here, the president and uh, Prime Minister Trudeau are going to have a phone conversation, uh, Biden's first official uh, phone call conversation with a world leader. It traditionally has been with Canada, so that follows tradition. That's okay. Uh, but as you've, I'm sure, heard, uh, there's a lot of pushback on the side of the border about uh, Biden's uh, executive order to kill Keystone, essentially. Uh, the, yesterday, the premiers uh, apparently have, are, are threatening the prime minister right now. They want to have a trade war with the United States. That's a great way to start off a new relationship. Uh, what kind of feedback, if any, is, is Biden getting south of the border about this? Because not everybody was on side with this idea of canceling it. You know, I think it's been very mixed here. I think more people than not uh, wanted him to uh, to kill that, that situation, kill the pipeline. Um, but, I mean, it, certainly there have been protests uh, prior to this on both sides. But honestly, down here, it's not really that much on everyone's radar. I think with the the COVID situation, um, with the economy, you know, struggling so badly, I think um, that really is what people are are concentrating on and worried about. We've had a lot of um, talk that the variants coming into the states are, um, you know, making a bad situation worse. And um, I I I think that the economy and COVID is is number one on people's minds and um there hasn't just hasn't been a lot of talk about the keystone pipeline to be honest uh, that's 
Yeah, that's why I wanted to ask you about it, because as I channel surf around and looking at what everyone else is talking about and all these executive orders, they're not even mentioning the pipeline. They're talking, as you say, about the COVID stuff, uh, about, you know, getting rid of the Muslim ban and a bunch of other things, and, of course, the the wall down around Mexico. Uh, they seem oblivious to this, and I guess one of the reasons why, as, uh, as David Aiken from the Global Ottawa Bureau has been telling us over the last couple of days, uh, shipments of oil from the oil sands to the States have actually increased without any pipeline. So it's not as if this is shutting this whole thing out so I, I guess you know perception is reality i guess with what's going on here but uh, it's, right. it's a much different perspective in washington than it is in ottawa isn't it yes i mean our gas prices have been really low for the past couple of years um and so as long as gas prices are low i think americans pay no attention as to where the oil is coming from and um you know as you said the concentration has been on the covid situation and in the hospitals being overwhelmed and you know, you can't, I, I, I live between Baltimore and Washington, and, you know, two weeks ago, they were putting people in, in convention centers and armories because they couldn't get people into Johns Hopkins Hospital and University of Maryland yeah. Medical Center in Georgetown. Um, so, you know, that's, I think that's just dominated our news. And, and of course, you know, we had an insurrection at the Capitol, so... Yeah, I mean, truthfully, I you know when you're when you start talking about the top ten things that Americans are concentrating on in the news, the pipeline's way down there. It's just it just isn't, and we just have so many other, I guess, bigger problems, if you will. Oh, absolutely! Listen, exciting times, and it almost changes by the hour. Uh, which is why it's uh, it's such a pleasure to have you on the program. By the way, quick question, uh, you know, because we saw the inauguration, we certainly saw the military presence. Uh, they were all aghast with the Lady Gaga's uh, national anthem rendition as well. But yeah. uh, what do the streets look like right now, Jennifer? Are, are, are the National Guard dissipating? Are they going back to their states now, or is there still a strong presence there? There's still a strong presence, and the you know the fence is still erected, and. Um, you know, there's still soldiers everywhere. Um, there's, you know, there's there's still chatter among these QAnon groups and and oath keepers, et cetera. And so, I don't think anybody's letting down their guard, um, if you will. But uh, there's still a, a pretty heavy presence. You know, I think that will decrease as the days go on and things appear to be calmer. But um, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm not really sure with the timing of the impeachment whether or not. Some of the guards mm-hmm. people will end up saying, "I'm not. Uh, I'm not really sure what you know how that's all going to play out." I mean, they're still there at the Capitol. There's some controversy about where they were sleeping last night. Some put in garages, et cetera, et cetera. But mm-hmm. you know, there's still thousands of, of soldiers in the city. Okay, we'll keep an eye on that. Great reporting on this. It's a pleasure to have you on the program, and hopefully, you can stay in touch as uh, things develop down in Washington and along the Beltway over the next little while. Thanks so much for this, Jennifer. Yes, thanks for having me, Bill. Thanks. Jennifer Johnson, Washington correspondent for Global News, uh, reporting from uh, the streets down around the Capitol and the White House. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.